0: And welcome to the Low Tox Life podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host. And today's show seventy. How do we get to seventy shows? It's amazing. Um, We're going to have to do something pretty special when we get to a hundred. I'll have to figure out what that's going to be. But um, I hope everyone's enjoying their January, having a beautiful start to the new year. I know we're um, absolutely loving our new year so far. We've spent some time with friends up in the beautiful region of the Northern Rivers, New South Wales, in the Bangalore area. And we've uh, just headed back home and and got stuck into the, the work year, which is really exciting too. It's going to be a great, great year. We've got so many things in store for you guys. Now, um, today I have the wonderful Dr. Ron Ehrlich on the show. He is my dentist. You will remember, or maybe you don't remember, uh, having uh, listened to him before. And if you haven't heard this show, it is mind blowing. Show number 33, you'll have to go back and listen to it, where Ron explains the connection between sleep. And what's going on in your mouth, whether you have an open mouth when you sleep, what that does to your sinuses, all sorts of incredible information to help you sleep better from a holistic dentist's point of view. But today we're talking about Ron's new book, which has literally just come out and I urge everybody to get it because if there's one pattern I see, a lot of people get their food right, a lot of people get their products right that they're putting on their body or cleaning with, but the stress piece is a really tough, too hard basket so often for so many people in our community, myself included. I really do sometimes feel like I take on too much or you know, it's, a, it's an evolving... Um, body of work to just access that calm and that stillness and I get better at it over time. I don't know about you guys but I I definitely feel like it's something I need to stay conscious of especially living in a city where it's all too easy to get caught up in things. So A Life Less Stressed is a fantastic book and today Ron is on the show to talk about that but I sort of take a couple of tangents and ask him some hairy questions that I get again and again in our community around uh, mercury amalgam fillings, the removal of them, the safety of that, um, and, and a couple of other dentistry questions as well. So I've made the most of having him on the show to get that information from him too. And it's really, really useful if that's something you or someone you know is wondering about. So before we hook into the show, I have the wonderful Goodness Me Box partnering with us this month, supporting the show and supporting you guys, uh, our Australian audience uh, only, I'm afraid, but we've got lots of international stuff in the works for this year. Uh, Peter Shulman is the founder of Goodness Me Box. It's a wonderful local uh, health food sampling company. And every now and then there's a gorgeous beauty product in the mix too. And Peter, the the whole ha- reason Goodness Me Box was born was that Peter was unwell for so many years, really unwell, unfortunately. And finally, she was diagnosed with an immune condition and, uh, you know, trying to navigate how she could help herself and support herself to feel well again. She took control of her health, stripped out the foods that had artificial processed ingredients, uh, you know, preservatives that were harmful. And really only honed in on natural ingredients, least processed possible, while still having con- convenient access to the odd packet of things. Uh, you know, I know there are so many busy families or, you know, sometimes your only opportunity to have breakfast is on the train. So you want something really simple and portable. Um, my favorite one for that is a, a good old chia pudding. But, um, you know, lots of lots of different things. And, and you, you see as you receive um, each Goodness Me box so much fantastic inspiration that helps you be healthy without you having to cook everything from scratch. Although there are lots of fantastic single ingredients in there, um, beautiful vanilla pastes and curry powders and organic turmeric and all sorts of things that I've received over time in um, the Goodness Me box. And anyway, so she sort of discovered the true healing power of actually just eating really simple food and became so passionate that she wanted to help other people discover this. So they've discovered, they've delivered nearly one million products, Australian wide now. And as, a, spe- as a, a special offer to you guys, you have $10 off. So your first box will only be $15. Um, you can subscribe for as long or as short an amount of time as you like. And the code is LOTOX. So check it out. I've got all the details uh, on the show notes. But goodnessmebox.com is where you'll find them. And you can also find them on Instagram by the same handle. So if you get your box and you want to shout out about it, tag Peter. She always loves seeing her. How people enjoy receiving their new um, goodness me box. So without further ado, I'm going to hook straight into this chat with uh, Ron. It's a really, really meaty one. Pour yourself a, a coffee or a cup of tea, or maybe if it's that time of night, a lovely biodynamic Cullen wine, as you would have heard Vanya Cullen, our winemaker guest in December, talk about. Um, it's uh, it's certainly become higher on our priority list <laughs> as a as a brand. I just had to, after hearing her speak, I just had to um, had to get some for ourselves, and and the husband is really enjoying enjoying. Those wines. So, uh, whatever you're doing, just sit back and enjoy this chat. It's a really um, a wonderful uh, thing to have Ron back on the show, always so full of wisdom, uh, and today discussing A Life Less Stressed, his new book. Hi,
1: Ron, how are you? Good, Alex. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's wonderful to have you back on the show, and with such uh, an exciting reason to as well, with your amazing book coming up. Uh, so um, So, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back. <laughs> I love I, I love your work, Alex.
0: Ah, just... thank you kindly. Um, and there's – I mean, there's so much we can always talk about because uh, holistic dentistry is such a vast topic. But this book you've written, uh, we, it sort of takes you more aw- – not away from your profession because it's your, your work that's led you to be able to write this book. But I'm keen to know how a holistic dentist such as yourself – Uh, came to write this book, why were you called to write a book and why stress was the real kind of um, the clincher for you to just say, I've really got to explore this and explain this for people?
1: yeah well i've been uh, i've been in in my own private practice for almost 40 years now i can't believe i'm saying that but <laughs> since 1983 i think was a big turning point for me because i was introduced to this model of stress which said stress was a combination of emotional environmental postural nutritional and dental stress and so that's the model of 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 stress that i've been working with for almost all of that time and of course then that if that's what breaks you down then you really need to or compromises your health then you really need to have a model for what can actually build you up and they are the five pillars of health which are sleep breathe nourish move and think or and and so the book is called wait for it a life less stressed the mm-hmm. five pillars of health and wellness and in and and the and the reason I wrote it was for two reasons or a few reasons, actually. One was it was a way of drawing a line in the sand for all of the things that I'd been interested in for all of that time, both professionally and personally. And and also um, I wanted to write it because I thought the word holistic was so poorly understood. Uh, people have this kind of new age, like it's <laughs> some kind of new age philosophy, yeah. where, whereas in fact, you know, it's how our bodies work and how the planet works, so it's hardly new age. And people always say they have stress, um, but they don't really, in order to do something about something, you've really got to know what the problem is. And finally, I guess, you know, because I'm a dentist and I see a lot of my patients regularly and I've seen them for a very long time. Some I've seen for almost 40 years. Some I've watched grow old, uh, grow up and some I've watched grow old. And this is kind of a conversation I wish I'd had with every single one of them. Um, and, of course, I don't have time to have that conversation because I still do dentistry. So, mm. that's less why I wrote the book, what drew me to that.
0: I'll defend you there, though, Ron. Like, when you do your annual checkup with me in between my six monthly cleans, mm. um, <laughs> you really do ask some some pointed questions that if someone yeah. was experiencing some underlying stuff, that it would be a really <laughs> big opportunity for them to to share yeah. that um so thanks you know, I well, really, you
1: know yeah no we've always had we've always done our own brochures patient information because we know that patients really often only remember 10 or 20 percent of what you tell them and so we've customized the message so we have a brochure on headaches on amalgam removal on postural stress on nutritional stress on, on root canal issues so we've always had that and as you would know in our waiting room and i'm looking forward to putting your book in there alex oh. we have quite a collection of books that I've read, that my partners have read, that we want to share with our patients. So it's kind of a bookstore, if you like, but a very targeted bookstore. So we've always had the information. But at the end of the day, we're dentists, and we still need to do dental work. And I'd love to have the conversation that I cover in this book, honestly, with every single patient. And and there's a lot in that book.
0: Which is why you had to write it.
1: I had to write it,
0: <laughs> exit through the gift shop, grab the book on your way out, guys yep. <laughs> yeah yeah um... So, uh, before we hook into the book, only because I get asked about this all the time and I always send people to you guys um, and a couple of other great holistic dentists in other states or people that I've found in the US to point people to because I'm certainly not trained in dentistry, but Mm. it is a huge issue of our time for the baby boomers especially with these amalgam fillings and um, if you could just share a bit of a framework for people to uh, approach the removal of amalgam fillings safely and what to perhaps do afterwards. I just think it's the tangent that needs to happen on today's chat.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Mercury, Mercury, mm. it's uh, it's a bit of an embarrassment, I think, for the profession yeah. that we're actually still defending this position and, and it's scary. It's scary because if something as obviously toxic as mercury is kind of dismissed as "Eh, maybe it's a problem, maybe it's not. Then just think about all the other chemicals that are a little more nuanced. Now, when an amalgam filling is done, there's always a little bit of scrap left over, and I often ask dentists that can that uh, defend the position who say, "Oh, this is rubbish. There's no problem with amalgam filling. It's still the best filling." I say, "Okay, uh, when you do your filling, there's a little bit left over. What do you do with the scrap?" And I know the answer to that question. It's a setup because I know that it's illegal to put the scrap into the garbage, the toilet, or down the sink. <laughs> it's got to, it's got to be disposed of as toxic waste. However, the association, and this is not just the Australian Dental Association, and by the way, I think the Australian Dental Association do a great job. And 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 gen, and you know they provide great education, great resources. I've used a lot of it in writing the book. But on this point I have a, a real problem. And that is they say um, the only safe place apparently to put amalgam fillings is amalgam mercury amalgam is in a human being and that just doesn't make sense to me so that's number one number two when you get the thing taken out That's when you possibly get your greatest exposure to it in a very short period of time. So that needs to be done very carefully. And by careful, I mean the use of a sheet of rubber that acts like a diaphragm that the teeth protrude through and that it protects your airway and soft tissue from the dust that is created in the removal of the filling. Mm -hmm. As soon as I put my uh, drill onto a mercury filling, I create a mercury vapor and the patient's nose is very close to their mouth. And therefore the route right up to the brain is very direct. So we give them a nose piece where they inhale uh, oxygen Mm -hmm. and different air source. So they are not exposed to that. On top of that, We use um, a a burr, a drill that cuts it out in pieces rather than grinds it out to minimise the the dust and minimise the vapour. And we have a lot of water to dampen down the vapour for our own good as well as the patient. And we use high-speed suction evacuation for our own good as well as the patient. And as well as that, in our practice, we have had for over 30 years Air purifiers and negative ion generators. Now, I recently had a hair analysis done to check whether I had mercury exposure, uh, you know, which you would expect if I wasn't being careful. And thankfully, the amount of mercury in, uh, that was detected was negligible. So, the precautions we're taking for our patients is that, and and also um, for ourselves are important. And and I love. I prefer to work with. A, a, an integrative doctor, a naturopath, or even a chiropractor that's got patients on on supplements because there's almost as many detox programs as there are practitioners. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so <laughs> I think rather than overwhelm a patient, I'd rather one practitioner, a practitioner that was looking after their whole body, um, you know, we recognize as a holistic dentist that our the mouth we're working on is connected to the whole body, but I think a doctor or a naturopath uh, are, or even a chiropractor are really well placed to to offer those whole body supplementations. We have our own simple protocol, but most of it comes via referrals.
0: Mm, interesting. Thanks so much for um, for sharing that. And is there a holistic dentistry reference, like a a a, um, a directory online globally that people can find dentists that work like you guys do? Because I get so many emails from people in the Mm. states or in germany saying you know where do i find someone like ron in my area yeah
1: yeah look i'm not really sure and i actually think we get asked that a lot and i've got various colleagues in different states who i do refer to but it's a good question look you know the the short answer is i don't think so not Mm. that i'm aware of but um, you know there are associations like biological dental associations, or holistic dental associations, or mercury-free dental associations oh, in cool. the UK. So you know there are associations which have a list. Uh, I think, you know, but not a whole, not a, not a, a global holistic dental association, unfortunately. <laughs> Maybe that's a good idea, though, Alex. I might get that.
0: Well, I just, I think it would be really, or at least a collection of associations mm. that mm. then mm. people can um, can go from there in their local yeah. area. I mean, yeah. Google is always great, but then if you've got a referral... Mm. Um, a, a sense that someone with like-minded um, yeah. colleagues has put this together, then that always just feels a little bit more like you're going to be yeah. onto a winner. Anyway, yeah. there we yeah. go. Tangent we done. Go. We got it done early in the piece today okay, Good. good. Um, and back to the book. Now, one of the things that I um, was really interested in, it's right at the start, uh, you point out that we're in a bit of a catch 22 mm-hmm. between stress and inflammation and um and i'd love you to share what what that is just explain it a little bit and the impact you believe it's having on us in mm. mo- modern times
1: yeah well stress and inflammation are so interesting because let's look at stress both of those things have been our first line of defense for hundreds of thousands of years in fact maybe millions i don't but at least 2 or 300,000 years of homo sapiens existence mm. and for example stress now our our fight or flight response, uh, of which that part of our nervous system called the sympathetic part of our nervous system that gets us ready for to face immediate danger, and and so if we're confronted with a threat, um, then a few things happen when the sympathetic nervous system kicks in in the fight or flight. The blood supply is reduced to our digestive tract. It goes to our muscles, so we're ready for the fight or flight. Our immune system shuts down because we're not so interested in fighting microbes. We need to use our energy to get out of there or defend ourselves. Right. Uh, We also stop using the frontal part of our brain, which is the considered a reasoning part of our brain that makes us special, I guess one could argue, as homo sapiens. We then go to the more reptilian part or reflex part of our brain. So a whole range of things happen that that are there to defend us. But the problem is, and and so for most of human existence, we have existed in the other part of our nervous system called the parasympathetic, or what I like to call the rest and digest part of our nervous system. So 98, 99% of the time, hopefully we're in the parasympathetic mode. Unfortunately, so, so the stress response has been a really important protective response, in in defending us in in our human history. But the problem today is that we're in that stress mode, in that sympathetic fight-or-flight mode most of the time. Mm. So here is something that's helped us, is now threatening us. So that's stress. Now, inflammation is another interesting one. Whenever you're exposed to bacteria or a trauma, you bump yourself, you cut yourself, you get infected – the body mounts an acute inflammatory response, and white blood cells rush to the site, and the clotting agents happen, and everything is starting to defend uh, and, and repair. It's all about defence and repair, and that's been terrific. We've needed it, you know. And 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 really, when it came to infections, often uh, we were unable to defend ourselves, and so uh, infective diseases took its major toll in our society. But you know, in our history, but inflammation was the first response to that attack. But the problem is today, chronic inflammation is now the common denominator that runs through almost all degenerative diseases. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about cancer, heart disease, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, oste- or orth- uh, you know, autoimmune diseases, which there are about 80. In Infl- chronic inflammation is the problem, and that's actually the link between gum disease and systemic health is that the most common side of inflammation is in the mouth. And so now as dentists, the profession is thinking holistically, even if they don't call themselves holistic, because they're realizing that what's going on in the mouth affects the other parts of the body. But I digress inflammation is is chronic inflammation is a problem so those two things that have defended us as the first line of defense are now manifesting themselves as our biggest challenge
0: Mm, so interesting isn't it wow so yeah okay um now in terms of when you see inflammation in the mouth then um through gum disease what are some of the things that you then start recommending to to patients to implement straight away.
1: Right. Well, here's an interesting thing. You know, a lot of people who are listening to this may relate to this. They may think, look, my gums don't bleed. They only bleed when I floss or, or sometimes when I brush my teeth. And so the response that a lot of people have is, look, I just won't floss and, and that's um, that'll be fine. And to draw an analogy, if every time you washed your hands, the cuticle of your nails bled, mm. your mm. response to that would not be to go, <laughs> gee, it only bleeds when I brush, when I wash my hands. I won't wash my hands for a few days. Let's see how that goes. Mm. And it's the same, exactly the same thing. So there are two things that we would encourage our patients to focus on, or three if you like. The first one is the, the importance of disrupting the plaque, biofilm or the microbiome, this is uh, the progression of the word from plaque. It went on about 20, 15, 20 years ago to be called the biofilm and is now referred to as the oral microbiome. But essentially, people may know it as plaque. And if you disrupt the plaque, then that is an important thing. And by disrupting it, we mean mechanically removing it through brushing or flossing. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. As soon as you do that, the plaque forms again. And the early colonizers, the bacteria that arrive there as soon as you clean, are not the ones that cause destruction. It's where you miss a spot for a week or two or three, but most importantly, the spot you miss after 12 to 16 weeks, about three to four months, where the late colonizers, the species of bacteria that arrive there, are more destructive. So mechanically removing either yourself through brushing or flossing or going to see a hygienist or a dentist to allow them to get into spots you can't get into is really important the second thing is without a doubt are we feeding our friends or our foes now this is a whole philosophical argument or discussion rather about our relationship with bacteria microbiome be it in the mouth or be it in the gut or be it in the soil um, it in our homes, are we feeding our friends or our foes? And so that is all about having a nutrient-dense diet that supports the bacteria that are in- inevitably in our mouth. I mean, we have 10 times more bacteria in our bodies than we do human cells. So, you know, yeah, they're, part, yeah. they're part of our journey through life. So we have to ask ourselves every time we put something in our mouth, are we feeding our friends or our foes? Mm. And so that's about a nutrient-dense diet.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Which kind of leads us straight on to talking about big food and big pharma, really. Are we feeding our friend or our foes? I would be really um, interested to know when you came to the realisation that our system was a bit broken when it came to the pharmaceutical and food industries.
1: Mm yeah well you know that's the first part of my book really it's a kind of part 1 is about what does it mean to be holistic what kind of state uh, is our healthcare in and i argue that it's a it's actually a chronic disease management system not a healthcare system and and also that f- public health messages are often confusing and often contradictory and i wanted to explore that because that is an it's an easy it's a story that's easy to miss But it's a story, once you hear it, that's difficult to ignore. And personally, I found it empowering. Mm. My my first uh, meaning, the message that I got from it personally was that I have to take control of my own health and I have to take control of my own research rather than just rely on what comes through the associations. For example, I've mentioned mercury and the official position on that. And we were told at university, mercury is locked into the fillings. It doesn't escape. And when a chiropractor drew to my attention, I was working, I was getting a referral from a chiropractor in about 1985 or six. And he said to me, Ron, you've got to read the literature. Mercury's escaping from the fillings. And I'm saying it doesn't escape from the fillings. The universities, the associations say it doesn't. Mm. And lo and behold, I learned it did. So that was a bit of a wake up call. And then I started to explore, hang on, what what is the food pyramid? What is the food pyramid? Where does that come from? You know, and it it turns out it it doesn't come from health authorities, although it is supported by health authorities, ironically. Mm. It was devised by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and their job is to sell crops and grains. Mm. So, so, you know, that was the first thing. The second thing is we are told that evidence-based medicine is the gold standard. And and you know, we, we we need to have evidence-based medicine. But it turns out that seventy-five percent of medical research at least is done by the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. And then when you start to read books like Selling Sickness by Ray Ray Moynihan, or or you hear A Bad Farmer by Ben Goldacre, or How's this for a title? Deadly Medicines and Organized Crime. How Big Pharma Corrupted Healthcare. Now, that wasn't written by some kind of left-wing, radical, holistic practitioner. This was written by one of the founders, one of the most senior researchers in the world and one of the founders of what is called the Cochrane review which is all about evidence-based medicine and making sure that it's it's actually uh, uh valid mm. so the founder of the cochrane review wrote a book called deadly medicines and organized crime so when you start to explore this you start to think hang on the role of the food and pharmaceutical industry in all levels of healthcare, be it government regulations uh, be it uh, health organizations like the Heart Foundation, the Australian Dietitians Association, proudly sponsored by the Grains and Legumes and the Dairy Council. Uh, When you see the influence that companies like Unilever have in every professional organization or Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola, you know, um, that's a problem. I'll give you one example. And you might say, Ron, what's the big deal? In 2003, the, the American Pediatrician Dental Association, the Children's Dental Association, made a statement like this. Carbonated drinks are implicated in tooth decay. Sugary carbonated drinks are implicated in tooth decay. So nobody would argue with that. That's mm. almost a no-brainer. But in 2004, they donated a million dollars to that association and the next year the health message was, it is still unclear what the exact scientific uh, science is behind the influence of carbonated drinks on oral health.
0: Mm.
1: Right now, that's almost a message that no one would argue with. But there's an example of how corporate funding affects public health messages. So that was my journey. And as I say, it's a story that's easy to miss but difficult to ignore.
0: Absolutely, and I think you know while vested interest still gets to play a part in healthcare um food industry, pharmaceutical government uh then we really do have to be our best experts ourselves and use our critical thinking caps and 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 really um take all research into account rather than just believing a headline. Or following an association's guidelines, I 100% agree. It also doesn't mean that we need to all become conspiracy theorists. No, <laughs> because no, no, there's no, the no. other side of that which we oh, see everywhere on the internet
1: with um... yeah, 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 no, no, I don't, I don't, I don't go down that path. No. I don't say that because you know, listen, if you've got um, if you've got a crisis, and I've been there myself. Um, then there is no place better than the Western health model. And the skill, the ingenuity, the commitment um, is, is phenomenal. And, hey, you know what? The, the, the one thing that every health practitioner that I know, and I know holistic and I know uh, more, oh, I don't know what you'd call it, traditional um, doctors and dentists, one thing every health practitioner that I know has in common is that they want the best for their patients. Yeah. That's, that's a given. Um, you know, so I think uh, I think that that is a really important point. I, I'm not into conspiracy theories. I might be disappointed with some of the messages from the health associations, but they also do great jobs in many other ways.
0: Mm, it's true, and um, and so in terms of what you just mentioned there, with um, with uh, crisis uh, being an incredibly um, what am I trying to say? Um, like the Western medical model being incredible for times of crisis, I totally agree. You know, if my arm's cut off, I'm not going to be running to my naturopath anytime soon. Um, and, you know, we really need to um, to give credit where credit's due. But you did also mention that we've become like a, a chronic care um, uh, giver in the Western model. Yeah. And um, I kind of – I always like to say mind the gap, which is everything that our system currently – unfortunately fails to address, and also poo-poo's holistic practitioners who address certain things beautifully. Um, mm. And I think we've got a real issue there. Um, how do you feel we can sort of best empower people to realise just how much uh, we can do um, and how great an impact it can have before reaching crisis and chronic stage as well? You know, there's just so much we can do.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, like I say, crisis therapy, fabulous. And the, and the medical research that's going on in all sorts of areas of bionics, of limbs and hearing and sight and, you know, I mean, it's fabulous. And, and there's a lot of, of, of uh, real disease that needs to be addressed and supported. Um, but 70%, 70, and I think this is conservative, 70% of chronic degenerative diseases in the Western world are preventable lifestyle environmental nutritional they are all preventable things so and i think that's conservative so i think what our healthcare system has become unfortunately putting aside the crisis and the wonderful work that's done is that it's become a chronic disease management system
0: yeah
1: and that lends itself and because we've we've kind of been lulled into it in a way by our relationship with antibiotics you know there was a model where people used to die from infections And suddenly an antibiotic was invented and you could write a script and a patient who would have otherwise died didn't die because they took antibiotics. Now, when you take that onto the chronic disease management system and you say, I'm depressed, what do I need? Oh, you need an antidepressant. I'm anxious. Oh, give me an antioxidant. I'm inflamed. Anti-inflammatory. I have reflux. Give me a protein pump inhibitor. I have, etc. Cetera, et cetera, So we have this very linear way of looking at things. And as each medication is prescribed, often there are side effects which require another medication. Mm. And so uh, this is a wonderful economic model.
0: <laughs> it is.
1: <laughs> it's a great economic model. It, yeah. is fueled, it is fueled by the food and chemical industry. It is fueled by the food and chemical industry. It is managed by the pharmaceutical and the healthcare industry. And it is a great economic model. You know, the trouble is it's not a very good health model. Mm. And so how do we empower um, people? Well, um, I think, and that's why the first part of the book, um, the three parts of the book were that first part which dealt with where we're at and the role of the food and pharmaceutical industry. The second part of the book is defining the five stresses. And the third part of the book is what you can do about it. Yeah. Now, I wrote the first part of the book because I think people need to be aware That the only salute, your health is just too important to rely on anybody else. Mm, If the only thing you know about health is your doctor's phone number, then you have a real problem. Mind you, you have a whole industry that is waiting to embrace you with open arms. Mm, You know, if you want to be part of that model, go for it. Because there's a medical industry that will tell you alternative healthcare is crap. A holistic is a new age philosophy. You know, evidence based medicine is it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But if you come away from that first part and you go, hang on. I need I need to take control of my own health, and so part two is really if we all acknowledge stress is a problem, but what do we actually mean by it? You know, I mean, in order to solve a problem, you've got to know what the problem is, and so in that second part, I outline what what are those stresses: emotional, environmental, postural, nutritional, and dental. Mm. And then, as the problems we face in our world become more complicated, I would submit that solutions are actually really simple. Yeah. They're not complicated at all and they're within everybody's reach and they're not expensive and in fact when you factor when you take a holistic view of the expense uh, what appears to be really cheap food and cheap products actually are not because when you take a holistic view of the finances of it all the role the impact that it has on your healthcare bills the impact that it has on our planet then what we're doing is actually rather expensive so so i think this is about It's all about personal empowerment, taking control, building resilience mentally, physically, emotionally, and actually trying to be the best you can be.
0: Mm, Beautiful. And it really is that simple. And I think humans are great at creating problems so that we can feel smart fixing them. (laughs) And we just kind of get ourselves on a hamster wheel of these sorts of things, I think, making things more and more complex than they need to necessarily be um and you mentioned there also obviously that 70% if not more um of diseases are preventable through various uh lifestyle choices and and changes mm. um but obviously that leaves a little chunk of 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 um not being exempt you know and and that's obviously more of a genetic situation um mm. Or, an exposure we weren't able to avoid um and i'd I'd be really keen to to hear you share your story um, as an incredible health professional who unfortunately wasn't exempt and and had something really big to deal with, um,
1: yeah. Um, yeah, well, you know, Alex, if you want to do something stressful, I think you know this, write a book yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. and if you want to do something even more stressful, write a book about stress. And then if you want to add to the stress, then get a diagnosis of prostate cancer while you're writing a book about stress. And Mm -hmm. that's exactly what happened to me. I was turning 60 and I knew that there was a family history. My father had it when he was 60. My brother had it when he was 60. My uncle also had it when he was 60 and actually ended up a few years after that dying from it. So I had a very healthy well i had I, I hoped it wasn't but the respect for family history and as it turned out i, I, I did have it and uh, prostate cancer is a very interesting well it's interesting <laughs> not really that in intre- but but anyway look um you know do you treat it don't you treat it you lots of men could have it and live to ripe old age and there is a way of of determining how virulent it is and mine was on a more virulent level but it hadn't spread to bone so i ended up having an operation i didn't need chemotherapy i didn't need any other treatment and 2 years down the track i'm uh, i'm i'm fine you know i have my my levels checked my uh, self checked every 6 months and i'm fine but it it does raise the issue about are we exempt from disease and no we're not Um, And and actually, you know, my takeaway from that was I had the privilege of being treated by incredibly skillful uh, team surgeon and and thankfully that went well. And and so I was in very, I thought I was in good health, apart from the fact that I had cancer. Hey, what the hell? Um, Mm. I thought I was in good health. Um, and, and I have focused on my health since then I focused on it before I focused on it since. So maybe the fact that I was very healthy or I've tried to be healthy, I've been lucky as well. Um, all has a factor. So we're not exempt. I think we do need to, um, to be mindful of of our genetics, you know, but there's two ways of looking at genetics. One is genetic determinism. For example. My family has, not my family, but say your family had a history of breast cancer. And one response to that may be, okay, look, all my family have got a history of breast cancer. I think I will prophylactically remove my breasts to avoid that happening. Mm. And I know that happens, you know, and it's a decision not taken lightly, I'm sure. The other way of looking at it is to say, well, that's called what I call genetic determinism. The other way of looking at it is to say, there's this thing called epigenetics, and epigenetics is about how, be it neurotransmitters, which are produced in your mood, or chemicals in our environment, or the nutrients we take, but chemicals attach to our cell membranes and cause our genes to express themselves in a particular way. So I prefer not to be a genetic determinist. Mm. I prefer to, um, to say, okay, Uh, I like the epigenetic model because, on the one hand, it's a bit frightening, but on the other hand, it's empowering, and I have some control over what I do. And so taking into account my genetics, my predisposition, which in my case was prostate cancer, and and there are a whole lot of issues around the treatment of it, to treat or not to treat, what happens when you do treat, some of the side effects of treatment. I mean, that's a whole big topic. I'm going to be doing a whole lot of work and stories on this myself. Mm. Uh, Uh, But suffice to say, I'm just trying to be as healthy as I can be, given everything I've learned and know. And at the end of the day, when I was writing my book, to be honest, I wasn't surprised. One in two men, one in three women will contract cancer by the age of 60 or 65. Now, I knew an awful lot of 60-year-old men that didn't have cancer. So in a sense, I think I took one for the team. Mm. Um, but, but you know, now kids are even suffering from cancer. It's not just that we're getting older. The fact – putting aside our increase in life expectancy, the incidence of cancer has gone up over the last 30 years by about 25 to 30%, mm. allowing for age increase. It's nuts. So, so it's a big issue. Yeah, it is a big issue.
0: And I think um, to kind of lead into just asking you a little bit more about each of the, the five pillars that you address in your book – um, it's, it's just about the perfect time to do that because there is so much we can do and um, to, to support our genes. And I think what you were saying before about, uh, you know, when you get a diagnosis, it's everything about what you've done prior and what you do post that is going to support you to have the best chance of coming through that healthily. Um, So, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, one in two of us is going to get cancer, so stuff it, I'm going to eat the hot chips every day. Well, Mm. no, actually, because if you do get that diagnosis and you weren't well placed in the lead up, then unfortunately it's not going to be as um, attractive an outcome. And and we know that uh, Mm -hmm. for sure. So, um, so I'm very glad you're you're all well and good, Ron. Mm. That's excellent.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Me too.
0: Um, and your first pillar is sleep. And mm. we've done a whole show on sleep. So, I encourage you to listen to that if you haven't uh, yet because uh, Ron shares some absolute perlers. And it kind of links to breathing. But I would love to just give people a bit of a taste of how the two link together mm-hmm. Um. Uh, in terms of being important and um, and one of the pillars you chose to address in the book, as so. Yep.
1: Yeah. Well, without a doubt, sleep is the most important part of the day. If if you get a consistently good night's sleep, then you will have. Probably the mental, physical and emotional energy to deal with all of the challenges or stresses that we face on a a daily basis in our modern world. So a consistently good night's sleep means for 90 percent of the adult population over the age of 18, somewhere between seven and nine hours, let's say an average of eight hours a night. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to put your head on the pillow. So there's a question of quantity and there's a question of quality. So quantity means seven to eight hours, say eight hours of sleep a night. Um, Now, quality means that you are breathing well while you're asleep. So putting your head on the pillow is actually not enough even for seven, eight or nine hours. And if you're putting your head on the pillow for 10 or 11 hours and waking up tired, this is definitely an issue of breathing. But, but the other issue is breathing. How well do you breathe while you're asleep? And there are a few things that happen while we're asleep that have the potential to affect the quality of our sleep. One of them is that the tongue drops back and restricts the airway. Mm-hmm. That, that has the potential to reduce the amount of air that we get through and it's called a hypopnea, which means you're just not getting enough oxygen. And another thing that happens is the tongue drops back to the back of the throat and actually completely blocks the airway and that's called an apnea. Mm. Now, now when one of those events happens for more than 10 seconds, then that that is considered a clinically significant event. And if that kind of thing happens to you, five to 15 times an hour throughout the night, then you've got mild sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea. If that happens 15 to 30 times a night, it's moderate. And if it happens over 30 times a night, it's severe. Now, we had a patient come into our practice a few months ago who, who was coming in chronic, with chronic fatigue, had a woman, chronic fatigue, 25 years of chronic fatigue on antidepressants on anti-inflammatory because she was in pain and she um was coming in to have her amalgams removed which may be a very valid thing for somebody like that to do but as you know alex one of the standard questions we ask is is it easy for you to fall asleep at night yes or no do you wake up through the night yes or no or do you wake up feeling refreshed most importantly yes or no and i said to her how do you sleep at night and she said "Oh, Ron." you know sleeping is not a problem i can sleep anywhere anytime i just put my head on the couch and i'm asleep i get 10 hours of sleep a night ron sleeping is not a problem mm. and i said to her well actually now sleeping may well be the problem actually no one had ever asked her in her whole journey about her sleep in any serious way and it turned out that this woman had episodes of uh, a pop uh, of blockages that of complete blockage, apnea, or slight blockage, hypopnea, she had episodes of 58 times for every hour. Now, there were only 60 minutes in an hour, so I'm not sure when she was actually, I was amazed she was alive. Mm. Um, but we addressed the sleeping problem through our sleep physician, and she actually ended up going onto a CPAP machine, which is a mask, And within three months, she was no longer suffering from chronic fatigue. She was off her antidepressants and she didn't need, you know, she was starting to eat well, absorb her nutrients, be relaxed, and she was off her anti-inflammatory. So it's powerful. Mm. And and with kids, it's even more interesting because 48% of people, kids who were diagnosed with ADHD, have an undiagnosed sleep disorder breathing condition.
0: Oh, 100%. I can't tell you how many people in our community have, uh, you know, gone and seen your amazing nephew, Lewis, uh, including my son. Um, yep. to discuss how the jaw and mouth is placed and how the sleep is being had and whether your mouth is open or closed, uh, as well as an oral myologist I had on the show, um, the mm. lovely Cole Clayton up in Byron, uh, and, and kids are working with both of these guys now and having unbelievable results um, just yeah. from addressing that. So It's a big one. It's huge. And, and-
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, that is another one about breathing. Now, you know, it's one thing about breathing while you're asleep, but another thing that people don't give a lot of thought to is whether you breathe mostly through your mouth or you breathe mostly through your nose and noses are for breathing and mouths are for feeding mm. and, and, uh, and speaking and smiling as well. But, but uh, noses are for breathing. And, and the importance of breathing, of nasal breathing, is, should not be underestimated. If you breathe through your nose, you have five levels of filtration. You have the fine hairs in the nose, yep. in the nasal passages. You have the mucus lining there, killing microbes. Yep. You have the sinuses and the turbinates warming, humidifying and filtering the air before you take it into your lungs. You then have your adenoids, then you then have your tonsils. So um, if you breathe through your nose, you're getting advantage of all five of those. If you breathe through your mouth, you're bypassing four and relying on your tonsils. So enlarged tonsils, upper, frequent upper respiratory infections are often a result of many things, but part of that is also mouth, chronic mouth breathing. Now, the other really interesting one, and the more I learn about nasal breathing, the more amazing, I think it is, there's a thing that the body produces called nitric oxide, which is one of the body's most important regulators. It increases the blood flow throughout our body, which is generally a good thing. It's an important regulator. 60% of the body's nitric oxide is produced in the nasal passages only when you breathe through your nose. So, so you know, Nasal breathing is really important and it affects your body chemistry, it affects this regulation, it affects your posture. So breathing is a really big issue and that's why I had a a separate chapter on breathing, but it's very closely and importantly related to getting a quality night, a consistently good night's sleep.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great, great piece of learning. It's just such an aha for so many people. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how people enjoy that part of the book. Mm. Um, now, nutrition. Obviously, this is a huge topic. It's a forty-five-minute chat in itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I know you're a big fan of Western A. Price's work as well. And uh, for those of you out there who haven't come across um, that dentist's body of a decades' worth of research, traveling the world and trying to ascertain why um, traditional cultures who all ate quite different foods to each other didn't have tooth decay and of course the uniting factor was that they weren't yet exposed to processed junk Um, and that's that's it in a nutshell but Mm. there are certain things um, uh, in terms of nutrition certain basic rules that I know um, you like to share with people Um, can we have a little clue as to what we can expect in the book?
1: Sure. Well, you know, in the nutritional stress uh, chapter, I outline uh, five or no eight or ten problems with our modern diet. But in the nourish part of the or nutrition part of the book, I I think having some basic principles guide you through the plethora of of choices that we have. And the most the most important one is that your focus should be on a nutrient dense diet. Mm -hmm. i mentioned are you feeding your friends or your foes uh you know it's not rocket science a nutrient-dense diet now what does that mean um firstly healthy fats i think are critically important this whole low fat avoid cholesterol Campaign has been an absolute health disaster. I think it's largely why we are facing um, some of the, you know, the chronic degenerative diseases, diabetes and obesity, uh, that we have, and I'd argue even cancer, etc. So I think healthy fats, and by healthy fats I mean fats, animal fats from pasture-fed animals, um, pasture-fed and finished animals, things like butter, also. olive oil, coconut oil, macadamia nut oil, avocado oil. You know, these natural oils, I would avoid seed oil. So a healthy relationship with fat is important. I think a diet that is predominantly vegetable-based is is also very important and predominantly above ground to keep your carbohydrate level down around the level that I think is – Achievable and sustainable is somewhere between seventy to maybe even a hundred grams of carbs a day, depending on your activity levels. And what does that mean? Well, you have to measure things for about a week to get a head, your head around it. It's mm. a worthwhile exercise. So, I think vegetables should be the main base. I think we eat far too much protein.
0: Yeah,
1: and I think uh, it's you know, tough on the, our kidneys. It, well, it's, mm. it's also the fact that most of the protein, supposedly cheap protein we're exposed to, is factory farmed. Yeah, and I yeah. have an ethical issue with that. I mean, I think factory farming of, of chickens and pigs and, and, and cattle is just cruel you know and we shouldn't and and not only is it fattening these animals up and and filling them full of chemicals but it has not a good effect on us either so from an ethical perspective i think those kinds of meat should be avoided and i think if you know we have free range primarily you know and preferably organic or biodynamic i think that is a better better thing and and if that's more expensive Buy less of it. Yeah. It's a win-win for the your health. It's a win-win for the environment. It's a win-win for the farmers supporting. I think farmers, hopefully this coming century is going to be the century of the revered farmer because mm-hmm. they need to be the most revered people in our society. So I think moderate amount of ethically grown and free-range proteins. I think clean water, another one, vitally important. Uh, that's still the best drink of all. I think a good salt, you know, we're told to avoid salt, you know, avoiding salt, avoiding cholesterol. These are two things that are so central to our very existence. It's just so, it's just dumb, you know, <laughs> to, put a, to, put, to put a point, to coin a phrase, it's just silly. It is. And so, But, oh, but to yeah, sorry. sorry. No, 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 that's
0: okay. Uh, for anyone, because salt is something you know, a lot of people are on blood pressure oh. medication, and and yeah. people get nervous when people say that salt yep. is okay. Yes. I'm just I'm yep. going to share a couple of really amazing long form investigative journalist pieces pieces in our show notes today, as well as a couple of research papers that talk yep. about types of salt and yes. effects as well, so that you can just yep. get some clarity and and find some research there um, to back up exactly what you've said, which is it's
1: dumb. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's dumb. Look, um, you know, but it's a great, simple public health message yeah. that's kind of confusing and contradictory. Yeah. Um, there's a great book called The Salt Fix, which I, I've, you know, been, been interested in, but there's lots of other. And there is, of course, conflicting research. So there you go, folks. But here, use your common sense. Uh, you know, we need salt, but we don't need table salt. We don't need sodium and chloride and maybe a little bit of iodine. We need the 50 or 60 trace elements that go into they are that go into a good quality salt, and i my preference is actually Himalayan rock salt because sea salt sadly, I think some of the sea salts may have plastics in them, mm. and that that bothers me i don 't think there were too many plastics when the Himalayan rock salt was laid down, so i'd prefer something like that i 'm not i 'm not quite sure about the Murray anyway you'll have your own view on this alex i 'm yeah. sure yeah um, so so I think a good salt. Um, And and so they're the basic principles, you know, good fats, lots of vegetables, moderate amount of ethically grown healthy proteins, lots of water. You know, I would avoid, um, look, alcohol is a whole big subject, isn't it? I mean, you know, go alcohol free for a few weeks just actually to benchmark yourself and see how good you feel and also as a social experiment you'll realise how, if you haven't already, how ubiquitous it is and what an outcast you can quickly become. It's crazy, isn't it? It's yeah. crazy. It's crazy. I've, so, had, I've so.
0: had male friends admit to me that they sometimes avoid going out on certain occasions because they mm-hmm. they feel terrified of being ridiculed for not keeping up with the rounds.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Grown so, men. Sorry, grown men. Well, <laughs> well you know, like, look, look, it's so issue. easy. It's so easy because yeah. alcohol has become... Ubiquitous. It's part of, you know, I've had a tough day at work. I deserve a glass of wine. It's a birthday. Let's have a glass of wine. It's a wedding. It's a this. It's a funeral. Whatever it is, there's something to be had. And it's not hard to come home from work. And I have, you know, dentistry is a pretty stressful job. So I've been there. You come home and you think, oh, I just, I deserve a glass of wine. And so you have a glass of wine with your partner. And before you know it, you've had a second glass of wine. And before you know it, you've actually finished a bottle of wine. So um, it's really... It's ubiquitous. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> um, yeah it's... So I lost my voice. No, that's okay. I was like, is he having a glass of wine? <laughs> I'm not. I'm just reaching for my water, my purified water. It's 10.30 in the morning, Ron. <laughs> I deserve it. This was a stressful chat. Um, <laughs> uh, you talk about movement as well, <laughs> uh, and this is another um, uh, another. Area that just confuses people so much, and yet I feel should be so simple. Yeah. Um, for me, it's about moving in a way that your body loves to move and moving regularly. Yeah, and I really think it should be that simple.
1: Um, and, and I think it is. I think it is, Alex. I mean, I think uh, our big, big challenge is sleeping. Sleep. Oh, it's not so, sitting. Sitting. <laughs> sitting, sitting, yeah. sitting. Sitting. We've covered sleeping. Sitting. Sitting is the new smoking. You know, and when you sit there's an enzyme in your legs called lipoprotein lipase, which becomes inactive uh, for any, you know, if you're sitting for more than 20 minutes, say. And that is very important in metabolising fat. And if your fat's not metabolised, then it gets stored around the internal organs in your body. And that's just one reason. So if you wanted motivation, there's one. But just I'm, I'm talking to you at my standing desk and I didn't believe that I could stand at my desk for any length of time. But in our office, not not in the surgery, unfortunately, yet, but in our office, um, you know, we stand, you know, in my home office, we stand. And uh, I, I think it's, it's great. So movement, walking doesn't have to be complicated. You know, if you do 10 minutes, say, of intermittent exercise, your, your, your metabolism could be ri- raised for 24 to 48 hours. If you go for a 10-kilometer run, your metabolism will be raised for six to eight hours. So actually more is less. You don't have to do much. Mm. And I think that's liberating.
0: Super liberating. And mm. and it just it sort of leads into thought really because it just makes you feel good to move. We're naturally meant to move. Um mm. and Uh, When you talk about thought as one of your pillars, which I love that you do because this is so often overlooked, our state of mind, especially, especially for people who are trying to make healthier choices, often it becomes negative thinking, thoughts of failure, thoughts of shame, and then stress becomes implicated in your healthy choices. And then the whole thing might as well be negated, everything you've done, because the thought piece hasn't been looked at, keeping you positive and empowered. Mm -hmm. um and um and relaxed through the whole thing so Mm -hmm. so could you share a little bit about why you felt that was important as well
1: yeah well you know thought is so interesting because uh, you know thoughts are things and those things are neurotransmitters your body produces proteins that are called neurotransmitters and they attach to cell membranes and they cause your genes to express themselves so thoughts are real biochemical things so mm-hmm. that's number one. number two our relationship with stress it turns out is how we think about stress whether we think it's her- harming our health is actually just as important as being under. It's actually more important how you think about stress. And in fact, how you think about things is quite important. And then then there's also I explore in the book, the PERMA model, which is something that uh, the, the founder, if you like, of positive psychology, Martin Seligman, an American psychologist, has talked about in terms of wellness. And that is PERMA stands for P-E-R-M-A. And they've added an H. So the P stands for positive emotions. The E stands for engagement. The M stands for meaning. Uh, perma, uh, what am I up to? Perma. Anyway, the R stands for relationships. And I think I've got that around the wrong way. P, E, R, positive, <laughs> engagement, relationships. That's the R, meaning yep. for meaningful relationships. The M is meaning and the A is accomplishment or acknowledgement. And they've added a th- last one, which is H, which means health. So in order to be able to achieve all of those things, your health's really important. So in a work environment, in an everyday environment, I explore that model. But probably the most important thing I've learned from my book is the power of expressing gratitude. Mm. Uh, We are bombarded constantly by negative messages in the news, in the world. You know, it's just endless and it's hard to it's almost it's quite depressing and and i could even argue that there's that, that that that's part of the economic model but but um expressing gratitude for the people around us and the things that we have is one of the most powerful and positive tools we have so i think thought is really important and i explore that in a lot more detail in in that chapter yeah beautiful and so when can we get this book Well, the book is coming out uh, on the 2nd of January and, um, you know, we felt that the timing of a book called The Life Less Stressed as a New Year Resolution may resonate with people Um, and uh, so it's coming out in Australia on the 2nd of January, in the UK on the 11th of January and in the US in the first half of next year.
0: Brilliant and we'll share the links obviously in the show
1: notes To Can we pre-order? Yes, you can actually. You can go to Scribe Publications and find the book there. Uh, I'm not sure it's up on Amazon yet. We'll have to check. But anyway, um, I'll let you know.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And we'll put the details in the show notes. Um, That's great. Well, I'm super excited that this book's coming out. You've been working on it for so long and you have such an amazing wealth of knowledge that you've collected over the decades um, and, uh, and I think people are really going to – it's definitely going to resonate with people. It's, it's just that bringing it back to basics, um, yet learning a few fantastically nerdy things along the way, which um, which I know the LOTOX community is always into. Uh, so I really appreciate you coming to to chat about it and giving some brilliant advice in general along the way, as you always do. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Alex. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Have a wonderful week. And before I sign off, I just want to say thank you to each and every one of you that writes a review or leaves a five-star rating on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever it is you listen to the show. We appreciate it so much much it's the best way you can say thank you because it helps us stay visible and it helps people who haven't listened to the show before but who might come across it in a search think "Hmm, i might give that a go so i appreciate that and i'm wishing you the best week until next week you can catch us on lotoxlife.com and if you want to check out those show notes remember to put forward slash podcast and it'll take you straight there otherwise i'll also see you on instagram i'm always posting there it's a little bit more uh personal and i look at sort of how i eat and what i do and my dad's pictures of blossoms and whatever else is going on and that's at low Tox life have a great week and i'll see you next week